Well, good morning. Uh, I would say it's good to see you all this morning. This is a smaller you all than is normally the case. I, I honestly am a bit intellectually puzzled by it all. I just wonder if the earth swallows up a good number of evangelical Christians the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I just don't know where they are. Uh, I, I'm quite sure they're faithful wherever they are. I just don't know where they all go. And uh, with uh, the boys' students, you know, the, the semester's come to an end, and so, so many, we, we schedule it so that they can go home at Thanksgiving, and they don't have to come back uh, for just a week of class or so before a final exam. So that makes sense, and uh, God bless them. The, the uh, UofL students, I think most college students, are kind of in the same position, maybe if they're coming back, coming back uh, tonight. But we know an awful lot of seminary students are still here. Some of them may have traveled just for Thanksgiving. But an awful lot of families obviously have been traveling. And so we pray they will be able to return to us safely and hope they had a wonderful time with family. But uh, it is a reminder to us that you kind of find out where you are when uh, you show up on a, uh, a holiday Thanksgiving. And that's where you find out that when you have a very young church, which thanks be to God, this is, uh, I now speak, as uh, Mary and I would speak, as grandparents, uh, we're very glad that a lot of young families are able to be with the uh, extended family uh, for this, uh, this holiday. So, the few and the brave this morning... We are braving into Luke chapter 16. We concluded Colossians when last we were together. And rather than begin a new verse-by-verse exposition of a book, just as we're going into the holidays, uh, and it would be disrupted, uh, we are going to look at several passages of Scripture individually. Uh, there is a, a need for this kind of exposition also in, the, in Christ's church. I think the way this church schedules its preaching is right, that uh, the main teaching and preaching of the Word of God should be in books, in, in a holistic fashion, taking the book as a unit, and either at one time or breaking it into uh, to, to component parts, going verse by verse. There are uh, two other needs in preaching and in teaching of the Word of God. One of them is uh, when you need an exposition on an issue, and so... In that sense, the issue's topical, but uh, the old topical preaching was, you know, what does the Bible say about X? Uh, the, the healthier topical preaching is what is a major text of Scripture that addresses X? And then uh, from time to time, it, it's good to have the exposition of a passage uh, out of the ordinary, different than what we have been studying, to remind us uh, of the power of God's Word in a particular passage uh, that might come in a different literary form. In Luke chapter 16, as you know, we're looking at uh, the center of the gospel, and we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And yet there's always more to it than this, because Luke is particularly helpful in telling us Jesus told this parable to. Jesus told this parable Why? But as we turn to Luke chapter 16, let's begin in prayer. Our Father, we're just very thankful for all you give us in Scripture, for every single word. And so, Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that you will bless your people by your word through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, Luke chapter 16 includes a couple of passages we refer to as parables. The second of them is the rich man and Lazarus. That parable was particularly helpful to me in understanding parables. Because in Luke chapter 16, you'll remember in the the latter part of the passage with the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus says there were two men. And uh, one of them was uh, a rich man, and he's so sumptuously wealthy that he feasts every day. And then there is a poor man named Lazarus. Little atypical uh, for a parable to have a name, but Lazarus is one of the most common names in the first century among uh, the Jews. And so it could be a reference to some Lazarus. It's more likely it's a reference to every man. But uh, Lazarus is, in this sense, of course, dying of poverty. Even the dogs come and lick his sores. And you recall that the rich man dies and goes to hell, and Lazarus, even before him, dies and is comforted in Abraham's bosom. And uh, so people who are looking at the parables for economic justice will love Luke 16 because it's the parable of the great reversal there with the rich man and Lazarus. You have the rich man calling out to Abraham, and Abraham says, look, in your life you had your good things, and Lazarus had no good things, but now he is comforted here, and you're in agony there. And, and, and so if you're looking for an economic interpretation of the parables, well, the, you just hit pay dirt. It appears to be about uh, inequity. And, uh, and no doubt Jesus is making that point, much like the Old Testament prophets made that point. The rich man found his comfort in rich things. Well, how's that working out for you now? Lazarus had no good things, but now he is comforted in the kingdom of God. How's that working out for him? You know, this is a glorious thing. It's also a strong word of judgment. But then you find out that the actual point of the parable is when the rich man says, well, if you can't uh, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, then send them to my brothers, lest they come to this place also. Jesus, you recall, says, well, they have Moses and the prophets the Bible. And the rich man says, yes, they have Moses and the prophets, but if you send someone from the dead, then they'll repent. Now we find out that the point of the parable is actually the power and sufficiency of the Word of God. And that makes sense in this context in Luke chapter 16. Jesus is making very clear, if you won't hear Moses and the prophets, then you will not believe in me. The dividing line between believing in Christ and not believing in Christ turns out to be the dividing line in believing Moses and the prophets and not, believing the Scripture and not. Jesus says to the rich man, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe, even if one should rise from the dead. Now, as I said, that parable, really, when I was very, very young, helped me to understand not just that parable, but parables. Because the temptation is to look to the parables and say, okay, uh, there's, a, there's, there, there's one point here and, and this one point is going to explode in such a way that it's going to shock everybody. And so people think, well, the shock is the economic shock. Well, that's pretty shocking, frankly. But the prophets are saying similar things. It's the, this, the second unexpected movement that kind of just drops the bomb. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe, even if one should rise from the dead. But here's the good thing about that parable in Luke chapter 16. We do understand it. It's real clear. It has this first movement. It has this second movement. 
read it, taught it, preached it, heard it, we got it. Not so much the first parable. That's why the first parable is referenced far less frequently than the second. First parable begins in verse 1 of Luke 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions, and he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm not ashamed enough to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, all right. The rich man and Lazarus, we can understand. We have the picture of the rich man, we have the very poor man. Here we got a crooked man. Now, I come back to this parable again and again because this is one of the parables of Jesus that leaves us scratching our heads. And at the very least, having to recognize Jesus is intending an awful lot of shock value here. Now, as a teacher and preacher, shock value is not nothing. It's something. It's a, it's a device you can use to catch people off guard. Having caught them off guard, you may be able to, uh, to make a subsequent point. But usually when you catch people off guard and you make a subsequent point, it's really, really clear what that point is. Looking at all the parables of Jesus, this one stands out for a couple of reasons. Number one, there, there's no good guy in it. Yeah, the rich man and Lazarus, we can figure that out. The rich man, not good. Picture of unfaithfulness, self-centeredness. Lazarus, good. Or, or at least uh, not bad in the way that the rich man was bad. But in this one, there's one dominant character, and this guy's a crook. Now, this raises a host of questions. Number one, why are we so interested in crooks? Because we are. You realize there are very few Hollywood movies on stable family men. Doesn't make for good Hollywood drama. Crooks. Crooks get a lot of attention. And, and, and spooks. And by that, I mean spies. The espionage is a whole different issue. We don't have time for espionage this morning. Crime's enough. Crime's enough for us this morning. And you know, the, 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 crime, the crime setup is, is pretty much always the same. In the uh, Christian world, 
it's important to recognize that uh, crime novels emerged from largely explicitly Christian contexts, especially in the English-speaking world. Uh, there was a group in London known as the Murder Club. Sounds bizarre, but the Murder Club was made up of explicitly Christian writers seeking to write explicitly as Christians, not to weave Christianity explicitly into the plot, but understanding that Christianity in a biblical worldview is what made the crime novel particularly interesting because of a compelling sense of law and order, a compelling sense of justice, a compelling understanding of right and wrong. It's really hard to write crime novels if you're not sure about right and wrong. That gets to the latter part of the 20th century in kind of a postmodern mood where both in television and in literature you get kind of the crooked cop syndrome. But that's not the way it was going back to the murder club. The murder club was made up of people uh, who included uh, P.D. James, Dorothy Sayers, uh, Ronald Knox, uh, from time to time C.S. Lewis. And uh, it was just basically about the fact that Christian writers are attracted to law, justice, criminality, courtrooms, police investigations, all because it's a part of a rational universe in which the Creator has instilled His character in right and wrong, justice and in injustice, righteousness and unrighteousness. But what we have here in the passage we just read is, is not an exciting crook. You know, if we're going for crooks, let's go for Robin Hood, steal from the poor and give to the rich in Sherwood Forest. If we're, if we're going for crooks, um, you know, let, let, let's go for a, a diamond thief. Let's go for someone with really skilled fingers and working a safe, and, and, and let's set up the plot so that, you know, this person has to go through concentric rings of very dangerous defenses in order to, to get the loot, and then the police have to do all the evidence. No, this guy is an accountant, basically. This is a crooked executive director. This is not the setup for a fantastic, you know, movie. Um, but there's a lot here. This rich man had a manager. So it turns out that upon reflection, both of these parables have rich men as one of the characters. That's the continuity between the first of the parables and the second. There's a rich man. The second rich man is the one who is contrasted with Lazarus. But in this first rich man, uh, he recedes into the background. The only thing that's important about this rich man is that he's rich and he had a manager. Okay, so that, that's all that's important at this point. The scene shifts to the manager. Now, that also is a shock. So Jesus is telling this parable, and a part of what we have to do in the literary investigation of the parable is ask ourselves what's interesting. You know, so the rich man isn't interesting at this point. He's just a rich man with a, a manager. The manager turns out to be, however, very interesting, a very twisted character. First thing we know about him is that he's losing his job. Charges are brought to the rich man that this man, his, uh, his, his manager, was wasting his possessions. Now, it turns out that whatever that rumor was, it was about as true as it could be, because exactly what the manager does is what the rumors were accusing him of doing. Uh, of uh, short-selling his boss, 
Now, the, the guy, the boss, hears about this, and, and so he decides he's got to fire him. What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Well, that's a rational decision on the part of the rich man, except for one giant problem. And the one giant problem is you don't tell someone who's in charge of your funds that you're going to fire him. This is just like personnel management 101. Fail, fail. You don't go to the guy who's in charge of your money and say, you know, you're fired in a few weeks. And especially when you're firing him because he's been accused of mishandling your money, you don't just give him new incentive to mishandle as quickly as he can. The guy's a crook. Never, uh, never has a crook been shown the opportunity and given the short timetable as this crook was shown. He does exactly what you'd expect. And he calls people in. And this, this is what makes him shrewd. What shall I do, verse 3, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he's buying friends. You know, people say you can't buy friends. Well, that's true in the moral sense. It's not true in the operational sense, okay? It's not true in the operational sense. In the operational sense, people can buy people who are friend-ish. And if you're buying them, you never know whether they really like you or not, but they do like your stuff. This is a, a, an issue that's come up again and again and again. And uh, I think it's one of the interesting side angles in the Me Too movement. Because you have somebody like Hollywood moguls and, uh, and, and, and very prominent men in particular in uh, the entertainment industry. And they're toppled by, you know, credible accusations of, of uh, sexual impropriety or even sexual aggression, sexual crimes in some senses. And the thing is, is that they had all these friends and they evidently bought them all. You know, they threw big parties. They, they had a lot of money. They threw the money around. But, you know, once trouble comes, people are saying, you know, I never really liked him. I always suspected something was going wrong. You know, he's a really detestable human being. Well, you were at his party last week. You were at his party the week before. No, no money can't buy friends, but money can buy friendish. Uh, money, money can buy the appearance of friends. And frankly, so far as this, uh, this dishonest manager is concerned, all he really needs is a roof over his head. He doesn't really care if they love him. All he cares is that they will receive him into their habitation. So here's the deal. And you saw it in the text. He, uh, he asked people, he says, what do you owe my master? And, you know, someone says, well, I owe him some oil. A hundred measures of oil. Then he says, hey, 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 just take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. All right, this guy just got a 50% discount right there. So he owed the guy a hundred measures of oil. The manager, who's been left inexplicably in his job for a short amount of time, knowing he's going to be fired, he says, let's just cut that in half what you say. And then the next one's got wheat. How much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. He said, he only got a 20% discount. Okay, so he's been undercutting the boss here. He's been, 
He's been taking the bill, cutting it down, buying friends. But then the master finds out. The guy with the money, the boss finds out. And here's where the thing gets really weird. In verse 8 we read, the manager commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. All right, if you saw this coming, it's only because you've read this before. It's only because we've talked about this before. If you saw this coming, it's not because you're smart enough to have figured this out. It's that you know that Jesus is intending to catch us by surprise. In the second parable, it's all about economic injustice and until it all of a sudden turns out to be about the sufficiency of the word. And in this case, it's about a dishonest manager who's being fired because of the rumors that had come to the boss. And then the boss confirms the rumors by catching this guy, writing one bill down by half, writing another bill down by 20, and the manager knows exactly what he's doing, and the boss now knows exactly what he's doing, and the boss now doesn't fire him. He doesn't. He commends him for his shrewdness. Now, I've got to be careful. I said something intentionally to make us look at the text. In verse 8, the, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I said that the rich man didn't fire him. Actually, the text doesn't say that. It kind of implies that, but it doesn't say that. Whether he fired him or not, he commends him. It may have been commending him on the way out. may have been commending him while retaining his shrewd services. But in any event, the rich man whose servant has just been undercutting his bills in order to feather his own nest... The guy goes, now you're a wily creature. You, this one right here, he, uh, he's got talent. He knows how the world works. He is able to size up a situation. And even after I have said he's going to be fired, he is still figuring out how to come out on top. That's shrewdness. But then Jesus speaks of the children of light and the children of darkness, as he describes believers in the world. In similar language, he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails you, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All right. I've never experienced whiplash. I've never been in a car accident where you get the classic situation in which the head goes forward and the head snaps back and 
you see someone walking around in a neck brace. Okay, I'm, I've never had that happen. I'm thankful. But this is literary whiplash right here. This is, this is the equivalent. As you come to the end of this parable, okay, what is Jesus saying? First he goes this way, then he goes that way. What in the world is Jesus doing here? First of all, we have the crook. And then we have the crook who's commended. This is not exactly what we're expecting in the parables of Jesus. And then not only do we have the crook that's commended, we have Jesus extrapolating. And there are two statements, I tell you in verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay, so you look at that and you say, what could that mean? What, what, what could Jesus be saying? Well, it appears that what Jesus is saying here is what uh, is a rhetorical device. It's the only thing that makes sense, actually, in which Jesus is describing a situation that can't happen. Now, we do that. Teachers do this. Speakers do this. Parents do this talking to children. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, everything we know about the gospel tells us that's exactly not how the gospel works. Everything we know about the gospel tells us that the gospel is by grace through faith. And, and so what this appears to be is Jesus saying, well, you know, this is only going to get you so far. You know, you, you can get as far as uh, your, your manager being commended by a rich man who's caught him being shrewd. But you know what? That just doesn't work getting into heaven. No one is in heaven because we were shrewd. When in speaking of the eternal habitations, you know, that's the one thing no earthly money can buy. So that appears to be a ludicrous picture. But then in the next passage, the one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little will also be dishonest in much. Years ago, I was in a church. I was a guest preacher. It was a well-established church in a big southern city. There had been a massive financial scandal involving a series of banks. You know, this was a community-shaking kind of scandal. And... Uh, what surprised everyone is that the banker at the center of this scandal didn't move. That would appear to be kind of the smart move, actually, would be to move out of town. Because he was caught in uh, a situation which mixed the criminal and the venal and, and the just, I mean, this is just a, a real, real ugly situation. But the guy stayed in town. You know, trial coming, all these headlines, small town things are just more intense. Okay, so this was the church's issue to me. And I'm visiting so we can have a conversation. And the pastor said, well, oddly enough, I'll just say Mr. Baker. 
Oddly enough, Mr. Baker, who was never a frequent church attender, um, he hasn't missed a Sunday. And oddly enough, I've been having conversations with Mr. Baker, and I believe that he is a broken man who is truly sorry for what he has done and understands that this points to an even deeper problem in his life. I've been sharing the gospel with him, and he has been grasping the gospel like a man lost at sea. And I said, well, that's wonderful. They said, well, you know, in gospel terms, it's wonderful. In ministry terms, it's awkward. We know we're supposed to share the gospel with him, and we pray he comes to faith in Christ. It really does appear that that's exactly what's happening. But now we've got to deal with the scandal of the most notorious criminal figure in town who caused injury to people all throughout the community coming to faith in Christ. And, you know, the pastor said, what do we do? I thought at this point a little levity might be called for. So I just said, well, you don't make him chairman of the finance committee. It, it, it did lighten the mood for just a moment. But I said, look, this is what the gospel is all about, right? And so the sheer awkwardness of this can be absolutely glorifying to God. I know it's awkward here, but you're the people who've been preaching the gospel and living out the gospel and sharing the gospel, and now the gospel awkwardly becomes a matter of public consequence. And uh, sure, if he makes a public profession of faith in Christ and joins your church or seeks to join your church or to, to even undergoing these criminal processes to be welcome in your fellowship. Then, I mean, this is kind of uncharted territory, but this, the answer to this cannot be no. The answer has got to be some kind of very awkward yes. Jesus, as the passage just comes to a conclusion, he says, you know, if you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. If you're unfaithful with a little, you'll be unfaithful with a lot. So when you look at the giant criminal, say, uh, uh, masters of, of the, the, the most notorious financial criminals, and, and oddly enough, we keep bumping into them, right? We do. We just, we just keep bumping into them because everything seems to be connected to something else or comparable to something else. I mean, the uh, Samuel Bankman Freed uh, trial, if, it's fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And of course, he was just convicted on numerous felonies. You know, and here we're talking about, and by the way, just the way the economy works, every one of these is bigger than the one that came before, right? This is a $13 billion that appears to have been largely, well, just either non-existent or evaporated. But in any sense, $13 billion real dollars of consequence. That's a, that's a lot of money. 
And of course, everybody looking back at it says, well, we should have seen it for what it was. Yeah, well, you should have seen it for what it was, but everybody wants to believe the dream. At least a sufficient number of people like this. Go, Bernie Madoff. You know, Bernie Madoff made off with like, like unbelievable amounts of money. And, and the rich and the powerful, the really smart people in cities like New York, Palm Beach also where he operated, they're begging him to take their money when people have already figured out this is mathematically impossible. You know, but people, even rich, smart people decided, I'll go with mathematically impossible. You know, you just go down the, the pyramid schemes and all the rest. Jesus concludes this, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, all right, that, that, that point, at least we understand. This sounds like Jesus. This sounds like the Bible. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. The principle, faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in a much. Faithful in unfaithful in, in a little, you'll be unfaithful in much. But then we still have to answer the question, what's Jesus doing here? What, what is this parable doing? So maybe we need to look at the context. In the context here in the central chapters of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been telling parables, and they have been big parables. These are the parables we call the magisterial parables. So Jesus sometimes tells little tiny parables about the gospel being like a mustard seed. These are giant parables. In Luke chapter 15, of course, the most famous is the parable of the prodigal son. And before that, the, the parable of the lost sheep. And of course, we understand those are actually tied together. So beginning in, in chapter 15, Jesus has been seek, speaking in these massive parables. And uh, they, they are ones that shape our understanding of the gospel. There is no parable that so shapes our understanding of the gospel as uh, the parable of the prodigal son. And the whole point of the parable of the prodigal son is that it explodes at the end when we recognize that we are the prodigal son. That, that's the thing. We recognize that, that we actually are the prodigal. This is not a story about someone else's story. This is a story about our own sin, our own desperate need for a Savior. There's very little transition The extended conclusion of the parable of the prodigal son ends chapter 15 and then begins chapter 16 when he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. Okay, so this, this ought to catch our attention a little bit too. So evidently, Luke has us understand this is happening at one time. This, this is one sitting, or at least it's one sequence. So Jesus said this, and then Jesus also said the second. So the first was about lost sheep that turn out to be a lost son that turns out to be lost us. In the beginning to chapter 16, however, there's a clue. We read in verse 1, he also said to the disciples. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Compared to what? 
look at the first verse of chapter 15. Look, look back at chapter 15, verse 1, and let's compare it to chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus is addressing these two sequential parables to different people. 15, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. And then chapter 16, he also said to his disciples. So that's really helpful to us. We've got to read closely here. So Jesus was telling the parable of the prodigal son when there were tax collectors and, and, and notorious sinners and, and others who were around him, surrounding him, confronting him. Jesus said, I'm going to tell you a story. But then in the very next sequence, without a single interposing sentence, we're told Jesus also told this parable to his disciples. Now, this is really important. The distinction between speaking to the crowd, and in particular, a crowd that included those who were accusing Jesus, and then speaking to his own, that's a completely different context. And we're now going to read this parable in a very different way. It certainly feels different. It feels different because it is different. The first parable, the parable of the prodigal son, explains how people come into the kingdom. Whereas lost sheep who are found, we are like lost sons who are restored. The second parable is about how the gospel people operate in the world. And this is something we need to know. This is something Third Avenue Baptist Church needs to know. This is something every single congregation needs to know. It's, it's, it's what the disciples of Jesus need to know, and, and we need to think about it recurringly, which is why I come back to this text to think about it. Jesus told this shocking story, but the central part of it comes down to how this manager is described. When the, when the rich man comes back and, uh, and commends the man, he does not commend him for his larceny. He doesn't commend him for his dishonesty. What does he commend him for? His shrewdness. His shrewdness. And then Jesus says, amazingly enough, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with with their own generation than the sons of light. Back in the 1970s in American foreign policy, the great distinction was between the idealists and the realists. Uh, Realpolitik was the French way of speaking of this movement in international affairs, of seeking not to understand the world as we want it to be, but rather the world as it is, real politique. It basically shaped American foreign policy for a generation. This is another form of real politique. It's another form of saying, well, let's just understand how the world works. The world works just like Jesus explains in this parable. 
And then he says, the sons of this age are more shrewd in their own generation than the children of light, the sons of light. So let's be clear. Jesus is not turning his church into a band of crooks. Nowhere is this manager commended for his dishonesty, his larceny, his embezzlement. No, no, no. It's simply a picture of shrewdness. And the same reason that we're drawn to crime dramas, because it's, it's, it's understandable. We, 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 we love to know about the crime. We love to see the police investigate the crime. We love to see the prosecutors prosecute the criminal and seek to prove the case in court. But at the heart of all of it is the fact that someone was shrewd. And and by the way, if the criminal were not shrewd, the story would not be interesting. I mean, no one's going to read an Agatha Christie murder mystery. No one's going to read a P.D. James murder mystery. No one's going to read uh, the crime literature, either of, uh, you know, the the early forms as in the murder club or or more contemporary forms. No one's going to read it if the crime's not interesting. The crime's got to be interesting. It just so happens that Crimes turn out to be interesting. Jesus here is using this as an example of shrewdness. This guy understood his situation. He was about to be fired, but he's still in charge. So he's going to use his shrewdness to try to ingratiate himself with friends. You know, when you look at the disciples... It, it, it ought to make us feel pretty much at home. You know, later in the New Testament we'll be told, because God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the powerful. In order that everyone would know that the power is his. It's not exactly a great affirmation to those of us who are believers in Christ. You know, it's it's not like God chose us because we're smart. It's not because God chose us because we're good. It's not that God chose us because we're clever. God chose us because we're sinners in need of a Savior. In order that he would do a work in us that would bring glory to himself. That's the story of the gospel. No one is saved because... He or she is shrewd because none of us is shrewd enough to find our way to the gospel. It's all of grace. But Jesus here does appear to be shocking his disciples in order to say, you know, a criminal's got to be able to size up a situation. You boys could actually learn a little something from that. A criminal's got to understand human nature in order to do his job. You know, you boys might learn a little bit from that. You know, a criminal's got to be very attentive to what he's doing because if he slips up, disaster ensues. You boys might learn a little something from that. I think to understand this particular parable, we have to think about something like the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. That's going to take 
a bit of shrewdness. Anyone involved in missions knows there's a lot of shrewdness that is required as well as unbelievable conviction. In this generation, a wonderful movement of young gospel church planters. As long as they're gospel church planters, that's a very happy thing. But you know what? It takes a bit of shrewdness to figure out how to plant a church because you cannot just add water and stir. And frankly, conviction is what has to be primary, but conviction won't get it done alone. You've got to have a bit of shrewdness in order for this thing to happen. You know, we've been through some things in this church that require us to understand we have the conviction. We know how to confess it. We know how to share it. We know how to preach it. We know how to sing it. But sometimes the hardest thing for a church is knowing how to translate that into hard questions that come up not so much in worship but in a members' meeting where you've got to have not only the full measure of conviction, you've also got to pray that the Lord will make us, in a godly sense, shrewd. We have to come to a conclusion this morning, but as we do so, let's just remember this. Jesus shocks his disciples, not by holding up a crook as a role model, but by holding him up in order to say, you know, it might serve us well every once in a while to understand what shrewdness looks like. For the sake of the gospel, Christ's people need to be not less shrewd than a crook. It's an odd thing for Jesus to say. Jesus evidently believed his disciples need to know this. And I think sometimes the sheer weirdness of it is the power of it because Jesus calls us to be shrewd in order to understand a parable about shrewdness. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you give us in your word. We pray this morning that you will bless your people and we pray that we will be in a sense that honors you in every way shrewd for the cause of the gospel right here at Third Avenue Baptist Church and far beyond. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.